guys! Welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path here in Asia. Before I get started with today's episode, I'd just like to let you guys know that I do have a career coaching program. So if you're feeling unfulfilled or not so happy at your corporate job, reach out to me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or via LinkedIn. I love to see how I can help. And for those of you who maybe aren't so sure what you'd want to do, I am sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion. It's a framework that has helped me and my clients in finance, tech, law, consulting, and more figure out what their dream job is. Want it? Check out the show notes to today's episode for more details. All right, let's get into today's episode. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with JJ Wuchang, who has probably one of the most interesting career paths I've come across so far. He first started off his career in advertising and marketing, and then switched completely and decided to start a matchmaking business. Now, he's working on another business in charcuterie. So what led JJ to start a matchmaking business and then a business in charcuterie? How was he able to transition and pivot his career across so many different industries? I'll hand over to JJ now to share his fascinating story. Hello, JJ. Thanks for taking time to speak with us today on the podcast. Welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Super excited to have you on the podcast because you've had such an exciting career journey, honestly. You started off in marketing and then you went into matchmaking and then now you're in the sausage making industry. Very yeah, I mean, different from one to another, but would love to hear from your own words a little bit more about your journey. Maybe let's go all the way back at the beginning. How did you decide what to study? I went to go study business management in Boston University. Back then it was called the School of Management, but I really kind of went in there like any old good Asian child, just do either management or economics or be a doctor or be a lawyer. And I wasn't really clear with what I wanted to do with my own life, but I knew that it was just something to do with business. And when I was really looking at what kind of concentrations I can get into, I kind of leaned a little bit more towards marketing because I really did enjoy that creative side, the creative aspect of working in a business, devising of plans. What really interested me a lot more was consumer behavior, actually. So it was a lot to do with human psychology, but it was driven for marketing purposes more than anything else. How I kind of really got my foothold into marketing was I got into a course about branding and that really helped me. Our professor was Professor Fournier. She was essentially the lead on rebranding the Harley Davidson experience like way back when. So she's like really big in the world, but she kind of really inspired me to really think, oh, wow, marketing is like really awesome. After that, I came back to Hong Kong because I realized back in 2012, I wanted to start expanding my network into Hong Kong. I always knew I was going to come back. There wasn't really kind of a question in my mind of whether or not I was going to stay in the States or move somewhere else. Hong Kong has always been home for me. So came back to Hong Kong. I got my first job working at a television studio. Essentially, it was a competitor to fashion TV. And what I did was working as a marketing assistant, got paid very little. Like even by today's standards, it's just like very, very, very little. If people are able to calculate the math, like I didn't have to pay tax. That's how little. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, it was really open-ended for that job. My boss was not very clear with his instructions. So a lot of the times I really had to kind of guide myself in terms of what I wanted to learn, what I wanted to grow in. 
I was able to lead the charge on a lot of social media content and strategies and non-traditional marketing materials for the company and for a lot of the shows that ended up coming out, which I felt was really good. It was a lot of social media marketing that you haven't developed a strategy yet. So for me, I was doing a lot of the back end. I was doing a lot of the early work back then when Hootsuite used to be like a real big thing. And it was scheduling everything and doing a lot of content creation. And then I ended up designing an entire campaign for a lot of their different things that they were coming out with. But ultimately, there was a disagreement between me and my boss. And then I got let go from that company. So that was the first job. I thought to myself, I already worked one year. As they say in like Hong Kong culture, it's like, which means like literally just put up for one year and you know just suck it up and just do it. And so I did. I didn't like that job. There was not a lot of vertical growth for me. And especially as someone who just came out of college, if there's no vertical growth already, what, what am I doing here? And I don't want to be a marketing assistant for five years. The benefits package was not great either. It was really government mandated minimums. I had seven days off. Uh, the whole for the year? year? The whole year I had seven days off wow, and okay. I was paid diddly squat. And I was like, this is not you worth had it. A, you, you had enough. Got it. Yeah, okay. I, was, I was like, you know what? I, I've suffered. I've suffered enough. I thought to myself, well, you know, I've always been really interested in the advertising side. So I started applying for a job doing advertising. I ended up getting a job at a two-way advertising firm. And this advertising studio was not as big as Ogilvy or any of the bigger ones. Those are what we call as 4A advertising studios. I got into a 2A, which was pretty good. It was very international. And it was very polarizing when I first went in. Because I remember I got the job and I was working as a research assistant to basically help out with doing industry research, competitive landscape research for any projects that may get picked up by their accounts team. And so I was like, awesome. This seems like, you know, it's pretty good. It was a small team. Everyone was very, very driven. It was a fun experience. I got, ended up getting to learn a lot about a lot of research and the advertising plans built for their campaigns. So one of the major projects we helped out with was Carry Hotels when they ended up rebranding for into Hotel Gen. And that was like throughout Asia and Hong Kong and Singapore. It was, it was quite a few places, but it was really fun to work on such a big project. And from my past experience, I ended up handling the social media awareness campaigns. And part of their 10-step program, whenever they're working with clients, the last part was something called post-campaign analytics. And I realized that that was something that my bosses and my team didn't really implement at all, but they really sold it in the sales pitch. So I told them, I was like, hey, if you give me all their information in terms of how we did and everything like that, I can probably draw up a bunch of graphs and information just to show us, even internally, what our own ROI is based on how much money we got and how much money we ended up giving to them as value. Because I had a lot of background in doing statistics and everything like that, especially from working social media as well as my <laughs> AP statistics from back in high school, which I still find the most useful class ever. I, I really loved it. I really loved pouring through all those numbers just to really see what the effectiveness of post-campaign analytics would serve. I was working on this project by myself and there was another person who came in that they hired to essentially take over my job. So I didn't get credit for that. Oh man! And it was a lot of problems, especially where it felt like I was basically reporting to about four different bosses at the same time. And I could see that my time with this company was going to end soon too. I was like, okay, let me have a real good think about this. I'm going to get bounced from this job. I'm going to be bounced into another job. This is not going to look good if I'm really trying to run this whole entire rat race thing. And I realized that I was kind of disappointed and I was also kind of bored with what I was doing. What made you decide that marketing slash advertising wasn't really in the cards for you? Was there like a trigger point? Because it seemed like, you know, the projects you were working on were 
pretty exciting. What I did was I ended up going into the Hong Kong Statistics Bureau and double-checked how much people in marketing were making on an average basis. And I was sitting there thinking, you know what, like if I got a job that wasn't via merit, I would obviously get paid a lot more. But since I don't have any connections in the marketing world or anything, it becomes a lot harder for me. And so if I have to drag myself, then I'm probably going to be making middle of the road money. So I started looking at census data for how much people are going to be making. Let's say I'm you know, a senior marketing exec at company X. I'll be probably making only about maybe 30, 40 by like when I'm, let's say 30. Like 30, 40K US dollars a year. No, HKD. 30, 40 HKD per month. So that's about like 5K US dollars per month. That's 5K US dollars. At 30. A month. Yeah. Okay. At 30. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I was like, is it worth it? Is it really worth it to like struggle this much? But when you're in advertising, you work the same hours as a lawyer, but you get paid a fraction compared to how much a lawyer gets paid. And I was like, this just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. I couldn't see the long-term viability of it. And especially Mm -hmm. if I don't love the job right now, then I'm like, am I going to love it for that little money? Got it. You know? So it was something that you were interested in for a bit, but was not something that you were truly passionate about. And so coupled with the fact that you knew that, hey, even if I grind through these hours, there's not a lot of financial upside for me. It just doesn't make sense for me to continue to stay in this industry. That was really what I was thinking about. And when my ex at that time broke up with me, and then this job was kind of like on its like last legs, I was like, well, I have to find something else that's interesting. I really want to pursue something that I'm just not going to get bored of. I had to do a lot of introspection. And so I was like, well, I still enjoy having conversations with people about their relationship lives and really helping them with their relationship problems. So ever since I was in college, what I used to do was I used to buy something called like a hookah. So essentially it's a shisha pipe. It's one of those devices where you kind of have to sit down. You can't really walk away from it. I remember I bought one back in college, my first year, and I sat down with a bunch of guy friends and we were out on the sidewalk on a bench and we were smoking. All the guys like every single college freshman, everyone talks about the same few things. They're either talking about sex, girls, or just something along those lines. And once they finished being boys, they started opening up and talking about a lot of their own issues. Some of them talked about relationship issues that they had. Some of them were talking about finance troubles that they were going through at home to pay for college. Some of them were talking about their academic expectations that they had for themselves and what they were expecting to do in order to maintain their scholarships. And the topic ended up getting a lot deeper. To the point that I kept on doing this once or twice a week and I would bump into friends all around the campus and they would just, you know, come up and high five me and they'd be like, hey, man, I really need a shisha. And that just kind of became code for I really need to talk about some stuff. And it was like a very bro way to say it without seeming too vulnerable. That's super cool. You were almost like a therapy of sorts. It was basically being an unlicensed therapist. Yeah. And so I really treasure those moments. A lot of it came down to teaching people about relationships, which is all about emotional management. Because I used to be the kind of person who used to pour over a lot of these self-help books to make myself a better person. So it would always be teaching people about how to deal with relationships and how to be able to think their way out of issues and problems. Very interesting. And do you feel like this was something that just comes naturally to you? I, I spent a lot of my formative years not paying too much attention to my studies. I really took that time to try to develop myself as a person. For me, when I went to college, I realized how one-dimensional I felt. And I felt like I was behind on so many people with just even having normal, serious conversations with them. I couldn't even have that. 
I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of friends and really doing a lot of self-development because I knew where I was and I'm not happy until I get to where I want to get to. Got it. So it was the process of better understanding yourself, being more vulnerable with yourself. And then through that process, you learned certain skills that you then actually could help other people around you. I knew that it was always something that I was somewhat interested in. So I really looked into it. I kind of kept on trying to see how do I apply this into a job? What what can I get with this besides being a therapist? (laughs) Did you ever consider that? I considered getting into to do a counseling degree just so I could do it on the side because the roadmap to being a counselor is a lot shorter than being a therapist. I could probably still entertain that idea, you know, but I I ended up looking into it and I was having such a focus on a lot of people's relationships. So suddenly the idea of matchmaking came into mind when I ended up reading a lot more about it. And I was like, shoot, this seems interesting. I had to go the next year to a matchmaking conference to go get certified. It's probably like March. And so I spent January and February talking to every single person I could get my hands on because I realized that one for me as a 25 year old guy who's not married, doesn't have kids that I'm lacking in a lot of experience. I can only rely on my own personal relationship experience. And that's not something you want to deal with, especially if someone's going to come up to you with issues that are far more complex. And so I spent a good two months talking to every single person I could get my hands on, aunts, uncles, friends, friends of friends, people coming from all walks of life, people who are divorced, people who are widowed, people divorced with kids, widowed with kids, people who have lost both their parents, people who have lost all their children. And I really wanted to get that aspect of understanding from them because I wanted to be able to empathize for other people's situations and their scenarios. Let's do like a plot exercise. So when there was a moment in your life that you were feeling very, very down, and you told your best friends about this, all of them are all going to say the same thing. Oh, it's okay. I understand you. I get where you're coming from. Except sometimes when you look into their eyes and you can see that they really don't understand what they're saying, or they don't understand because they've never been through what you've been through and they don't have the capability to be able to empathize. It's nothing bad on them to have the intention of wanting to empathize for you, even though they can't. But there is that sinking feeling in your heart sometimes when they don't understand you. And I realized that was that little tiny thing for me. Whenever I talk to people, I don't ever want them to feel like that again. Interesting. So then you went through this exercise of just talking to as many people as possible in preparation yeah. of this so that you would be able to empathize with them. Was all this relating back to the matchmaking piece so that you would be able yeah. to help them solve their problem, their relationship? Yeah. And problem? so that's what my view of matchmaking was. And then I went to the Matchmaking Institute's conference to go get certified which was very short. It was basically me being in a room with like 50 like middle-aged suburban white women. And it was the strangest thing ever. But I did meet some interesting people that were there. I was super thankful for. I ended up meeting one of my pseudo mentors who I asked out for dinner. She really sat me down and she was like, you know what? I'll really run it down with you. Like what matchmaking is about. Showed off her skills. She didn't really need to say much. You could tell that she really carried what I was really looking up toward. Uh, A lot of the other matchmakers in the US, they really view themselves in the aspect of looking at people like they're a hedge fund manager. And it's really kind of like trying to buy low, sell high. And I didn't like that aspect of it because it just made single people like a commodity. You could tell this by the way that they treated a lot of their clients. It was really super business focused more than anything else. It wasn't really about how to do better the client more than anything. It was a lot more on matchmaking rather than date coaching. 
So it was really about fulfilling the need of finding singles rather than helping those single people up on their feet and to help them get them running. So more just like giving them a date or a yeah, match it's kind of like rather kind of than like, the skills. For me, I really believed in that whole other aspect of it because this is such a customer oriented business. Like it should make sense for the customer rather than it really being so driven by numbers more than anything else. Got it. Okay. So, so you found this mentor who took a more personal approach to this rather yeah. than a very business approach to this. And then how did it go? How was the rest yeah. of your trip? It was good. I realized that for me, the way that I wanted to do this business really slowly, I didn't want to just take on any client that I could get my hands on. I really wanted it to be that business where it's focusing a lot more on client growth and it's focusing a lot more on the growth of them as a human being more than anything else. I ended up starting the business and in Hong Kong, it was a slow start. I really didn't put any money into marketing or anything. I literally try to keep it as lean as possible. And if you're working as a solo freelance service-based agent, your overhead cost is extremely low. The hardest part about that, especially looking back now, it's really hard to try to figure out how to expense your time properly and to really see how much of your time is actually worth. There was kind of no proper business plan that I kind of went in with. I felt like I was fumbling around the dark a lot to kind of find the right price point, the right kind of customer. And it was really tough. Did you feel like there was like a gap in the Hong Kong market? I realized that there are, there are actually a lot of dating agencies in Hong Kong, but the problem is a lot of them run so much like a business that they sometimes really couldn't give two shits about the client. I spent my first year with just a couple of clients. It was really small. I was just barely able to make ends meet. And I was also dealing with a lot of people who came to me as some sort of customer service agent for the entire industry. So a lot of people were complaining to me about, oh, dating company A took my money. They didn't oh, give me okay. X, Y, and Z and everything like that. And I'm like, I'm sorry about Kwang Omes. <laughs> what does it have to do with me? I'm sorry. <laughs> that was tough. But it was because of that, I ended up finding a foothold where I ended up realizing I want to focus not just on giving people matches by themselves. I wanted to kind of help individuals. So I ended up trying to direct a lot more of my clientele towards people who wanted to help themselves a lot more too. One of my very, very first clients, he was tall, good looking, good family, great connections and everything. He asked me to find someone who's basically like him, a 10 out of 10 unicorn and everything. I ended up finding someone for him and you know, he went on a date and what really sold it for me was he paused the contract and he says, you know what? This girl is exactly everything that I asked for. She's everything my family wants from me but I don't think she's what I need. And I was just so, so proud that he came to this conclusion on his own just from meeting other people and having conversations, opening up himself with our conversations that we have normally. And so for me, I realized that that's that moment for me that I want to keep encapsulating in people. Yeah, and I think so, that speaks volume to your approach to matchmaking versus other people who might just be like, this is a business. I found you the perfect match. You should be happy yeah, exactly. with this. I really like helping a lot of people get to where they want to get to emotionally. And that's something that I really loved doing. And I was really working small time for quite a while. And then I ended up getting noticed by another matchmaker in Singapore. So she hit me up and she was like, Hey, you know, we're thinking about doing an expansion into Hong Kong and we want you on board. And I was like, all right, that's awesome. So I ended up working with them for a little bit to help them open up their offices in Hong Kong. And it was great. It was really strange to kind of be in a situation where I was the youngest person in the office and yet the only guy in the office. 
And it was with a bunch of other female matchmakers. It was really strange. It was very, very humbling. I ended up learning a lot of stuff from them and how they're operating their business and how they're uh, operating as an entity, and especially towards clients. We really saw eye to eye on a lot of things. But I think for me, I realized that I couldn't really work for somebody else. As fun as that sounds, it's not really something that I really wanted to do. And so we ended up parting ways. I ended up opening up another business under a different name. Back then it was called Fine Love and HK, which was something my friends ended up coming up for me. But simple and straightforward. You yeah, know it was exactly simple and straightforward. I, 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 have, I, have, I have not really done a lot of research into trying to brand properly. So I was like, shoot, I need another easy, simple name, but it's also kind of classy. So I was like, okay, what about the love consultant? That seems easy enough. And so ended up opening up the love consultant. And yeah, that's been something I've been working on since. I'm curious to know how this is different from the Fine Love in Hong Kong got acquired by uh, the Singapore company. Oh, I see. I see. I see. So, so that's why you had to come up with like, a new name. So I had to come it. up with a new business and everything like that. I guess like back then, how did you find your first batch of customers? Like how, how did that go? Like, I know you talked about a little bit about like pricing challenges that you had. I was really thankful that a lot of my great customers were people that I've known before who just really approached me randomly and everything that just heard through the woodwork that I was like, Hey, JJ, I heard you're doing matchmaking. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> so, so the customers that you had were mostly like friends of friends, people who grew up in Hong Kong, but went to international school. Yeah. I mean, um, the, the community by itself is quite tight knit. But not everybody's going to know every single person who's in that community. And so a lot of people in that community were also facing challenges where, you know, unless you really went out of your way, it's hard for you to expand your social circles. And when you first started out, or even just in general, were most of your clients men or women? A lot of my clients were women. When I was doing a lot of research back then, it was about 852 men for every 1,000 women in Hong Kong. So that's very skewed against women. And, you know, people are asking, like, well, where are all the men? So my job ended up becoming like, I have to go and find these people. Interesting. And so how do you go about finding them? A lot of it comes down to just doing a lot of networking and paying a lot of people favors. But yeah, I relied a lot on my own personal network to ask people, to ask other people, to ask other people. Did you ever consider like going on those online dating platforms to try to find these people on their behalf. Yeah, of course. Some companies do that, but I'm working by myself. So at the end of the day too, it's just the amount of time you're putting in versus what you're actually getting is tremendously not, mm, different. Got it. Got it. Like the leads you get are just not as qualified for the amount of time that you're spending. Okay. So how do you get your friends to intro you? I'm just so curious. Like for example, they managed to introduce you boy A and then boy mm-hmm. A is now on your radar. What's next? Well, I would figure out who knows boy A. Then I would ask those people, oh, do you know so-and-so's boy A is single? You know, and then if you do, it's like, hey, like, like, I know this is really out of the way, but could you help introduce me so we could just sit down for a coffee? So I would sit down with boy A. I would kind of vet them. So that would just be asking uh, a series of like leading questions just to kind of like help. Wait, but wait, what would be the context of meeting him? You. And you would you introduce me as a matchmaker. Oh, uh, okay, okay, okay. There's no mismanaged expectations. Got There's it, okay. No, so then I would talk to them. So let's say uh, if you were my client and then I know boy A and boy A fits your criteria, then I would be like, all right, hey, I want to introduce boy A to you. Besides all the stuff on the demographic side, we also found out that personality-wise, I think he might be okay. And also it seems like from an emotional perspective, he seems like he might be a good fit for you. So we'll be making a quantitative match as well as a qualitative match at the same time. Mm, got it, got it. And so I guess then they would kind of take it forward and go on a date and see if that, yeah, they hit it I off. Mean, I, 
yeah, I tell people that at the end of the day, you're just meeting something new. If not, then, you know, it's okay. Move forward. So I guess kind of shifting gears a little bit to understanding the business side of things a little bit. Do you charge the girl or do you charge the boy? I charge whoever's looking. Ah, okay. So the person no, who is no. looking, how does that work? Do they pay you at the end when it's been no, successful? So or? I figured out it was, it's much better to just have it as a retainer. So usually it's like a six month retainer starting from maybe about 30,000 or something like that for about six months worth of work. And it doesn't sound like too much, but it's also relatively quite expensive for Hong Kong market. Hong Kong market's really driven the pricing of matchmaking and everything like that quite low relative to other countries. So it's much harder to kind of make an impact. But I also know for me, it just requires a lot more time. It requires a lot more effort. I am putting a lot more of my energy kind of into each and every single individual client to kind of really talk with them about where they are, how they're doing, how can I get them to, from point A to point B. So it's a little bit tougher. I say it starts from 30K because it really does depend on like what your criteria is. I've had people that ask me for you know cross-country stuff and everything like that. And I'm like, well, obviously I have to figure out like how much is it going to cost me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to build up like a whole network in another country yeah. and in another region is tough. Yeah. And if there is a successful match at the end uh, and they hit it off, do you charge separately or do you charge additionally? I know a lot of other matchmaking companies that do. So it's like, if you get married with that partner that got set up with, you do have to pay success fee and everything. I don't really like doing that. That's really just not the way I want to handle things. I tell people that when you're done working with me and whether or not you end up finding somebody, I want you to be able to handle going on dates and looking at other people by yourself. And I want you to be a better person because of that, because of all the stuff that we've been through. Got it. So you just charge the retainer and, and that's it. I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know that I have a career coaching program designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing your dream career. So if you too want to be like JJ and build a fulfilling, purposeful career, but maybe aren't so sure what that dream career looks like, I'm sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion. Want it? Check out the show notes to today's episode. All right, back to the episode. We've talked a lot about the, the matchmaking side of things, but I do want to get to what you are working on nowadays, which is the sausage making business. Not really sausage, but it's really doing a lot of uh, charcuterie. Got it, got it, got it. Sorry. <laughs> um, so the matchmaking stuff ended up slowing down during COVID period because for me, it was such a face-to-face business. And mm. so I remember I had quite a few contracts that ended up uh, going up in smoke because that was at the beginning of COVID in Hong Kong. People were just freaking out and they just didn't really want to go out at all. Mm. At that point in my life, I had this like other hobby. Go back six months before. I was introduced by a few other close friends to this one other guy who forced us all as a group to cook a lot. And I remember at one point he made this duck prosciutto and I was like, this is really good. He was like, yeah, man, you, you can just make this in your fridge for like, like two weeks. I was like, shit, man, give me the recipe. So he taught me how to make that recipe and I made it in my fridge. And the first time I made it, it tasted like the Chinese ham. That you mm. end up putting in soup, gum wa fa Oh, wow. It's a really <laughs> so strong like flavor. Way oh. too salty. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like too in salty. a bad way. <laughs> in a bad way. And it kind of just became this hobby for me. It became a reprieve from being hyper social for work. And so I would go back home. I would go to my kitchen and it would be like at 12 a.m. at night. No one's awake to message me or anything like that. 
I would just go there. I would just do it. And it, it became this very therapeutic exercise for me to just do it at home. And I experimented with like a lot of different things, everything ranging from like some pork to, uh, you know, duck and everything. And I played around with a lot of weird flavors. It was a strangely fun experiment for me to do. And so when COVID ended up hitting, I thought to myself, I was like, well, shoot, that business is going to be really slow. I don't want to stay at home and just be bored. And I was like, I might as well just continue my hobby. So I did. And then by that point last year, at around uh, July, I had reached a point where one, I had made too much, made too much ham that I couldn't eat it all by myself. And number two, I was making enough that friends were starting to ask me about it. And they're like, hey, man, can I buy some from you? And so I started taking in an order of duck. I reached out on Instagram and a lot of people were asking for it and they paid me. And I was like, all right, sure, let's do this. It was fun. I really loved that experience. It was just seeing whether people loved it or not. And uh, a lot of people did. So I thought to myself, shoot, I can't really keep doing this at home. So why don't I start looking for somewhere else? Or why don't I try subletting in another kitchen or something? One friend asked another friend who asked another friend who asked another friend. That friend ended up knowing who I was. So he asked me directly, hey, I heard you're looking for a kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) He ended up finding me a kitchen inside his hotel. I'm like, you know what? This is really good. It's bigger than my home. And it's a place where I can expand and kind of just see whether or not this kind of makes sense. I paid very nominal rent and I was like, all right, well, this seems kind of interesting to me. And so I started expanding there. Was that scary when you were sinking that money in initially, or you already had orders and kind of validated that you would have enough customers? It was scary, but renting that space was so cheap that I calculated it out. And I realized that if I didn't take that offer, I would be losing money. And so Mm -hmm. it became a silk test whether or not this would make sense as a business. And so I really poured through a lot of finances just to really kind of see if this made sense, what my profit margins were and everything like that. It had to make sense because this was my hobby. This was something that was an escape for me. And if I was going to turn my hobby into a business, it has to make sense. It can't just be a job, especially if it's your hobby. It has to be a career meaning you have to have a long-term goal that you're trying to achieve. And if you don't have that, then don't do it. <laughs> like really don't do it because it's not worth giving up a hobby for. So fast forward to this year, I was still working in the old kitchen. It was quite great. I also realized I want to do more and starting to run this side project as a business was starting to make me more money than being a matchmaker. <laughs> it's a very big difference in terms of cash flow. Let's say if I gave you a lump sum of money today, versus giving you a small amount of money every single day for the same period. With the small amount of money that you're getting every single day, there is a lot more leeway to be able to just make a lot more financial decisions in the immediate moment because your cash flow is a lot higher. My old business was really like you're getting a lump sum of money every single six months. And it really became about managing the costs along the way. And it was much harder for me to expect what kind of costs were there because it was also intangible. A lot of those costs were intangible because it was so service oriented. Whereas this one is much more like every time you make something, you sell a packet of it, then you you just get that cash coming in. Yeah. And it, and it, it did make a lot more sense for me that I could you know nail all of that stuff down. I didn't have to think about it too much. There was a kind of a tipping point for me when back in May, June-ish, my landlord told me like, hey, you know, someone's buying up this entire space and everything like that. We're going to have to kick you out in a month. And that became a point for me where I'm like, shoot, I need to figure out if I want to 
turn this into like a business business because I'm going to have to pay like big boy rent. And then I'm going to really have to see if this makes sense. And so I hired someone else. I went around with them to uh, help me look at all these different places that we're looking at for where to start. And we ended up coming across this place in Wontokong. That was really good. Okay. So I guess that was a, a good tipping point for you to like actually make a decision on your business to be like, hey, yeah. actually, like, you know, the cash flow is more secure with this one. And I'm actually even making more money from it, my I mean, security was, business. It was really kind of also scalability aspect of the business where with the service business, it's like you can't really scale that. And for something that's so emotionally intensive, like doing matchmaking and day coaching, it's also quite draining. Don't get me wrong. Like I still love doing that job. It's just, I realized I have to do it in a much more reduced capacity compared to what I did back then, especially when I still keep my sanity. While my goals with doing this business are completely different, it's like, I want to be able to produce the best product that's there. I had talked to a lot of different friends who are all running a bunch of small different businesses just to kind of like ask them what their expectations were for doing this. And I remember one of the key things that one of my close friends asked me was, do you want to be famous or do you want to make money? The matchmaking stuff has ended up giving me some notoriety, but it certainly hasn't made me as much money as I would like to have. I want to be able to make money from this and not focus on that aspect where it's like, it's my face, it's my brand. At the end of the day, for me, I tell people it's about the product. If the product is not good, I'm not going to sell it. And that's been that same commitment since. I just want the product to stand on its own. Got it. At this point, are you still running the Love Consultant in parallel or is that kind of slowing down and, and you're kind of moving I mean, on I from wanna, that? I'm really trying to wean it down where the matchmaking stuff becomes my side job more than anything else. And then this becomes my main job. Do you think you would ever want it to be like 100% zero? Or do you, you still really enjoy aspects of the matchmaking that you don't get in the charcuterie business? In the meat consultant, I realized we didn't introduce it. <laughs> the meat consultant business is something I have a passion for. I really like this and I really want to see where it can take me. It's completely different. Your question being the matchmaking part, but I still want to do it. Yeah, I still want to do it. I still love it. I still love that chance of being able to help people achieve what they inherently want to be able to achieve emotionally for themselves. It's very different from doing this job. Very, very, very different. But... Just for right now, I think that this just makes more sense for me. Makes more sense from a financial perspective? Makes more sense from an interest perspective? Makes more sense from a financial perspective. Got it. And I'm actually so curious to know, I would have actually thought that with a luxury service-oriented product, you would be able to have higher margins and, and make more money from it. So I'm actually quite surprised to hear that the the meat consultant is actually generating more. Would you be able to like share a bit more? around that with the matchmaking stuff it was already going into a market that was already quite saturated because there are a lot of dating companies in hong kong so many people flooded the market and there are so many players that the price has been driven so low and you're really playing a volume game more than anything else and it makes it very hard for me who's playing more on quality rather than quantity to kind of survive i still am able to pay all my bills and everything like that but if you're really thinking about can i really grow and everything by all means no the food business is something that isn't really offered here in hong kong i know what good ham is but for me it was also about flavoring all these things in very different things and so for example my best seller is like a Sichuan peppercorn duck prosciutto 
like you're not going to get that anywhere else. You have been able to incorporate like local flavors or like Chinese or Asian flavors yeah. into shakuhachi so like, that so makes you stand out. I, yeah, so some of the stuff I did it was like a Japanese pork loin that was like mixed with miso paste as well as like seaweed powder and everything, so it gives it this light little umami touch. Some of the other stuff I do is a coffee cure that's mixed with like Japanese charcoal filtered coffee that gives it a little bit of like smokiness also at the same time. I work with like. High-end stuff such as like、uh, Japanese wagyu. I'm actually experimenting right now with some stuff that friends have been begging me for, which is like fish, and so it's turning fish into ham. Not like cured salmon because that's a little bit too soft and the preservation is not as long. But some stuff like that, and I want to expand. I basically designed this entire studio, this entire kitchen space, and everything. And this was going to be a soak test for me in the next like year, two years for me to see if this works. Where my next goal is to essentially do a、uh, ham-based, charcuterie-based like omakase. It's honestly, so awesome. So not just in terms of selling products, but also selling the experience of yeah,、uh, people buy ham the same way that people buy. Sushi at a convenience store sometimes, or at a supermarket. Whenever they buy ham or sushi at a supermarket, you don't think much about it. But when you go to an omakase restaurant,、mm -hmm. you are literally having to treat every single piece that's given to you like a piece of gold. You know, <laughs> you listen to like the story, how exactly it was exactly. like cut, where is it、exactly. from? <laughs> And so for this, I want the same experience where it's like you really should be paying attention to every single little tiny detail that's there because there's a lot of work that goes in, and it's really about Explaining to people why you decided to pick this. Yeah, I want people to also be a part of that story. Honestly, I'm so excited for this experience. Like this omakase thing sounds really awesome because I think it's also excitement of experimenting with different flavors, different types of meats, how you can carry、yeah. them, bring them across. I have so many failed experiments, but it was also. Realizing for me that I wanted to push myself into something that I could see a higher level, and I didn't really get the same feeling that I got when I did matchmaking. Matchmaking, I kind of knew very much what I was getting myself into, but it was hard to kind of figure out where that higher level was for me. What was that long-term goal I was trying to achieve? But with this, I want it to the point where even if this is served by someone else random and they explain the entire thing and it wasn't me, like it'd still be good. I'm actually、and、very was, surprised because. When you talked about how like the matchmaking business is very competitive, I always thought that F and B business is one of the most competitive industries out there. So F and B is very competitive because everybody needs to eat, but it's also at the end of the day, it's also the same thing as blue market strategy. Like entering into a brand new category, creating、yeah. a new space for yourself. Exactly. And I didn't want to compete with the other places during COVID. There's so many people who are making cupcakes, so many people who are making cakes and everything like that. I don't want to just make like peanut butter, chocolate chip cookies or anything <laughs> like that. I want something more. I've always been that kind of person where even if I cook, I don't want to cook something else that someone else has cooked before. I want to cook something that no one else has cooked before because I don't want them to have a point of comparison.、Mm -hmm. I want them to just treat the product as the product by itself. Is the product good? Not based on the other people's things, but is the product good? And so it started off with selling it to your friends, or actually your friends asking to buy it from you. How did it then scale and expand? And also relating back to marketing, have you done like a lot of marketing on this? I poured zero dollars into marketing and zero dollars into advertising, and I'm happy enough to say that for the most part, I was still in the green. For right now, especially with paying big boy rent, it's a little bit different. Big boy rent is not fun, but it's also at the end of the day, it gives me a chance to have my own space that I can actually expand into and really kind of showcase to people like what it is that I'm actually doing, and I eventually kind of want to 
open this up and do tastings for people every single two weeks or so. I want to go into how you grew both of your businesses a little bit, because I think that's one of the harder things for, for people to figure out. It's like, great, you've set up a new business, but like, how do you actually grow that business? When people say luck plays a part in things that happen, it's true. You really do need to have some luck. I also think that for me, I've not hired anybody else besides like someone that helps me take care of a lot of secretarial work. I have not hired anybody full-time to help me. I went into this business really thinking to myself, like, I'm going to pinch every single penny because this has to make sense to me financially. And I didn't want to repeat the same mistakes that I made with the matchmaking stuff where I really didn't keep a lot of tracks of my accounting and everything like that. I track quite literally everything. You kind of can't be afraid of that. And you also can't be afraid of asking help. I have ended up with a lot of clients that have ended up helping me in more ways than one to help me reach this point where I am right now. I'm more than happy to take your help. I don't have an ego that's going to get in the way of it. Too many people in Hong Kong have an ego. And I feel like that gets in the way of them growing and learning. It's just at the end of the day, you know, the first few months, you're really going to have to eat dirt and you can't really do anything about it. That's the hardest part. And the hardest part is when you're aware that you're in the first few months and you're eating dirt and you're like, why am I eating dirt? (laughs) And I guess you've done it twice with two different businesses. Did you ever envision that you would be an entrepreneur? Not really. I just know that I never really did well with listening to people's instruction, which was like a positive and a negative thing. I really didn't do well with that. I I wanted to ask you, because I think that's what a lot of people are maybe a bit nervous about. It's like, hey, like I've never done matchmaking or I've never done charcuterie. How could I possibly set up my own business in that space? Did you at any point feel this imposter syndrome or was just like, oh, you know, let's just see what happens. Try it out. We'll figure it out along the way. I always tell people like, I'm never going to be the best. And I don't ever want to be the best in it because if I am the best, then there's nothing for me to learn. And I feel like that also applies the same with doing this. I always tell people, even my clients, you have to have confidence and humility, confidence in the path that you've chosen for yourself and the journey that you've made for yourself and the steps that you've taken along the way, but humility to understand another person's point of view and where their journey has taken them. If you aren't able to accept that, obviously you're kind of in a quagmire, but yeah. So for you, I guess you never felt like, hey, I needed to have some sort of training or some sort of external validation in order for me to you know, start up a matchmaking business or start up a charcuterie business. For the matchmaking part, I kind of just went in. I didn't really think about what other people thought about it. But for this one, because this is a lot more capital investment more than anything else, there is that expectation of making a return on investment. So recently, for example, this week, I had a breakdown already because some of my new product that I was making that's scheduled to be for Christmas release ended up not turning out to my own expectation because of the new equipment that I've been using. And that kind of broke me a little bit because it was something that it was the simplest thing for me to make. And yet it's still screwed up. And that was not fun for me to deal with because if I'm screwing up on the thing that takes me the least amount of brain power, what about everything else that I'm doing, that I'm investing myself into? I'm the kind of person I've realized over the past year that I put a lot of pressure on myself to create the best product. And I've had a lot of close friends that have told me that you shouldn't keep beating yourself up for it. And it was really tough to kind of swallow that and not try to beat myself up for it. Like it was just stuff I had to write off. 
it just is what it is. Do I wish that I did better? Yeah. And I still think with this, it's like, can I still do better? By all means. If people come up to me and tell me that I'm a fake, I'm not going to give them my peace of mind because they're not worth it. I think a combination of maybe confidence in in yourself and not caring so much about like external validation. And also, I think you raise a really interesting point, which is for your matchmaking service, there was very little that you needed to invest in it. And so for Mm -hmm. you, the risk wasn't as high, whereas this time around, there's more money at stake. And so you felt maybe a bit more nervous going into this business than you did. There's a lot more pressure for it. And I think this is the first business I'm dealing with that I can actually scale up to a certain extent that I want it to achieve. It's nice to be able to comfortably say that instead of you know, having a business that just like makes you enough money. At the end of the day too, a product has to stand on its own. If the product doesn't stand on its own and you're just basing this on brand value that it's my product and you think it's good because it's my product. I'm like, no, I, I don't have time for this. I want it to be where if it's a homeless person that made this, would you still eat it? <laughs> and I think that that's been one of like the most key messages that I'm getting out of this conversation is your focus on building the best product possible and kind of separating out the brand or the personality behind it so that the product really is front and center. And I think that yeah. that's quite different from matchmaking where you were the product and you were then the face of the business. So I think it's, I it's think quite that- interesting that you started off two quite different types of, of companies. I'm going to move on to the last section of my conversation. And this is a question that I always ask all of my guests, which is in the Western world, people usually say, hey, follow your dreams and eventually the money will come. Whereas growing up in Hong Kong and and, in Asia, it's much more focused on financial security and that eventually you'll come to love your job. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on this statement. Which camp are you in? I think it's in between because uh, a lot of us in this generation have been told, follow your dreams, follow your dreams, follow your dreams, especially if anyone follows any sort of Western education. It does make sense to some certain extent, but you also have to understand the limitations of that. The limitations of it being you have to be happy with what you get sometimes because it is your dream. Eastern philosophy of just do it and make as much money as you can right now, then you can explore. That makes sense. Also, they both make sense. It's just as people, we're always so fixated on what's black and white. We have to figure out what the gray area is and we have to be able to pick and choose what makes sense for each of us. For me, I looked at it where this was a passion for me, but it's also, I have to be hyper pragmatic about where this business is going to be, where is it going to grow? How is it going to grow? And that's because I've looked at this a lot more with much more of a scrutinizing eye than I have with my matchmaking business because I want this to make sense. And is it because you see more longevity in the meat consultant than you did in the love consultant? I guess I wanted to understand why the shift in mentality. I mean, the shift in mentality was really because at the end of the day, I still like doing matchmaking and everything like that, but it's also realizing the limitations of doing matchmaking. Limitations from a business perspective, right? Yeah, it's just the limitations of what I want to be able to achieve with it. Mm. I feel that glass ceiling for myself. Okay. And last question for you before we kind of close off our, our conversation today. Any advice for someone who's trying to figure out how to quit their corporate job to start their own business? If you want to change your job, And if you want to get into, you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to figure out what this means for you as a career, not just what this means for you as a job. If you just think about it as a job, then it just pays you money. 
if you think about it as a career, you're thinking about how you can thrive and make your mark in the industry. I love that definition of job versus career, making your mark in the industry and you know having a contribution to to that industry. I think that that's really what differentiates the the two. Especially if you're just doing this business on your own, you really just have to suck it up and just do it. If you're uncomfortable looking at the marketing aspect, just suck it up. If you are uncomfortable with the accounting aspect, you kind of have to suck it up. If you are uncomfortable with the financing aspect, you still have to suck it up. Set yourself towards that career and know that sometimes that career is worth it. But if you don't figure out what that career path is for yourself, then I would say that you're looking at it from a very short-sighted perspective. And a truly last question from me, what do you feel like is one trait of yours that has taken you through this entire journey? I'd say not having an ego, not having too much of an ego. There are people who are bound to know a lot more things than you do. You have to have confidence and humility. I wasn't able to get to where I am right now if it wasn't for being confident enough of what I am promoting to other people while being humble enough to take their opinion. When people are talking to you and it seems like they're bragging to you almost, but understand that what they're saying is things that you can learn from. And the only person in the way of you absorbing what you should be learning is your own ego. I really like that. And I think that's a great way to sum up and wrap up today's conversation. So thank you, JJ. It's been so much fun chatting with you and learning about all the cool and interesting things that you've been doing. I really, really appreciate it. All the best with the Meet Consultant. I'm very excited for you. Happy to be on. And there you have it. My conversation with JJ. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, when deciding if you want to turn your hobby into a business, think about it in terms of building a career and not in terms of a job. A job takes on a more short-term mindset and focuses just on making money. Instead, JJ recommends taking a more long-term view and consider whether or not you can turn this hobby into a career. If you think about it in terms of a career, you are setting a much longer-term goal for yourself and thinking about how you can make your mark in the industry. Two, one motto JJ lives by is to find a balance between confidence and humility. Confidence in the path that you have chosen for yourself and the steps that you have taken along the way. But also humility to understand another person's point of view and not let your ego come in the way. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in two weeks' time for the next episode, where I'll be interviewing Aaron Chin, who went from selling credit data to private companies to being the general manager of furniture store Bow Concepts in Hong Kong. And now he is the founder of Editor's Company, a company that provides online home styling to help you create your dream home. It's a super interesting one that you definitely don't want to miss. So make sure you're subscribed to my podcast to get alerted. And if you liked today's episode, do share it with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. And for those of you interested in getting some career coaching, feel free to reach out to me or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore for more information. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. 